Well, I am really, really excited uh, to have Matt Parsley uh, preach tonight. And I was sharing with him earlier that when I was laying out all the messages and I was trying to see what would be the proper sequencing of the messages, uh, the bad news first, fear is real, the good news, how do we conquer it? And every message was right, spot on. Uh, I am so deeply thankful for knowing that it's the trust in the Lord. It's the, the joy of the Lord. It's, it's the faith and it's the, uh, that love. And so uh, now we turn to wisdom, or excuse me, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Now, you know why I picked Matt Parsley? Uh, Matt Parsley, man, is able to take the scriptures and, and really dig in deep and lay that foundation of information that we need to move forward. Because if truly the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom, that's got to be the starting point. I have to share with you that uh, I really kind of stand in awe of this man. You know, you always want to surround yourself with really smart, intelligent you know, guys that really can put things together. And uh, it makes you look good because you've asked people that know a lot more than you do to do stuff. It's great. I went to Belarus with him, and we went specifically, he and I, to do training of, uh, what was it, like 50 young Belarusian ladies uh, to teach them how to do a business plan and a marketing plan. And man, I'm telling you what, this guy is, he knows what he knows. And so this is the message for him because he invested himself to build it. Like he taught those 50 ladies, they built business plans. These are Belarusian gals that don't know anything. They built business plans and marketing plans. It was phenomenal. So I really appreciate this man because he has stayed the course even in very, very difficult times back home. And so uh, let's give it up for a great man who puts it all together. And, and after he's done, I'm going to tell you the story behind how he and I got together. It's pretty cool. Do you remember which, that? Which time? The first, very first time. Oh, yes. I've been telling people the story. Oh, you have? Okay, yeah. well, let's hold that. Sorry. <laughs> How many have not heard that story? Well, why don't you tell them the story? Because it's probably different from your perspective. So, Jake stole my wife's Bible at the uh, Montana family camp, right? So, long time ago, this wasn't like yesterday, Jake, Jake was six, five or six, something like that. And somehow, Rachel's Bible ended up at the Compton house. And so they coordinated to do, and it turned into a great relationship. She actually came out here many times before I did. And now I feel like people are frustrated why I'm here and she's not They're here. Not. <laughs> so I will, I will bring her out and bring, uh, bring my kids with me. But that turned into a great relationship. Had the chance to travel with Bill a couple times and uh, really enjoyed that. I really appreciate this particular topic. Sometimes at camps you are given topics as a speaker and you were like, what does he want? I do not know what he's going for. Um, and a lot of times you don't, you don't completely get a topic that, that maybe is in your wheelhouse of things that you're really convicted and interested with. And this is one that I really like. I'm also very appreciative that Bill did not make me preach first this morning. Um, Bill and I operate on very different time zones. I live in Indiana, and on more than one occasion, Bill has called in the morning and woke me up. Um, 
because he, he gets going a little earlier than I do. I am a night owl, and he is not a night owl. At, uh, I don't know, what's the, what's the morning thing called? Early bird. Early bird, yes, early bird. So it, it, makes, our, it, make, it makes the trips we've done to Belarus very interesting <laughs> as far as the difference in that timing. So, But uh, really appreciate this particular topic. I, I love the concept of wisdom and knowledge and the relationship that goes along there. I memorized James chapter one, as you know, many young people probably do in uh, high school, that if anyone lacks wisdom, he can ask of God and he will give uh, to him generously without reproach. And I was like, I'm gonna do that. And I have prayed for wisdom every single day of my life, uh, praying that I can understand what, what God wants of my life. Uh, I've actually you know, come to enjoy, I never really ran into the field of philosophy in my youth. I've really come to enjoy philosophy, the, the very nature of the word philian Sophia is lover of wisdom is what the word philosophy actually means, which I think is right up the, uh, the alley of where Christians should be pursuing and understanding God's will. So I kind of draw a little bit this particular message whenever he gave me this, this topic. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. I kind of pull that we, we see these concepts stated in different ways many times in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 111, verse 10, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so we're gonna kind of talk a little bit about these concepts. I wanna define terms because I think it's very important to understand uh, what these mean, and then talk about the relationship of these concepts, the fear of the Lord, wisdom, knowledge, and then even, even you know, it can't go without saying that we're told that it is the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of these things and examine what that means. And uh, kind of uh, draw some conclusions from those relationships. And then I'd like to give you guys some, hopefully some practical application this evening. So go with me to Ephesians chapter three. We as Christians, I, you know, I used to be a little bit hesitant about this. I'm not, I'm not anymore. We, we are encouraged to pursue a deeper understanding of God's will for us uh, in this life. And we, we see that within scripture, that there is this consistent encouragement to grow in these concepts. And the Apostle Paul here uh, has, a, has a prayer specifically for the brethren at Ephesus in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth drives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we see this prayer that he's like, I want you to understand every dimension. I want you to understand every facet. And I pray that you can grow in those concepts and those understandings uh, of God's wills that it better applies 
to your life. So this was that prayer. It's a prayer for knowledge. It's a prayer for wisdom. Uh, it's an understanding which we're told starts with the fear of the Lord. So let's let's define some terms here. So the fear of the Lord, as Bill mentioned, I'm, I'm the first speaker and uh, I, I wanted to be a little hesitant here. So I was looking at the, the schedule and I, I could just step on everybody right now if I wanted to that comes after me. But there are some awesome titles that, that I know we're going to really examine what the fear of the Lord is. So I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. I don't know if I'll go all the way into it. I hope to offer some insights on the concept of the fear of the Lord. But I, I want to focus even more so on that relationship between that and the, under, the concept of knowledge and wisdom. So the fear of the Lord really speaks to a reverence or an honor of the Lord. And that's, that's kind of been stated already, that we're talking about a reverence and an honor. Fear, if you, if you sit there and think about it, it, it involves a recognition and even a trust of, of some sense of power that is there. And it's not just any power, it's a power to change or to affect. And typically when we think of fear uh, in, in the uh, normal sense that we may experience it, it often comes internally driven by emotion. That's typically how we would, would consider fear uh, of something that is worthy again of attention and consideration. So it's really important to, to recognize the difference in the concept of the fear of the Lord. Okay. Um, fear, we have to recognize that fear is reverence and honor because it requires the precedent of our choice. Fearing the Lord requires the basis that we choose to fear the Lord. And that's not typically how we associate the fears of this life. We think of fears as something that drives from emotion. It's something sometimes outside of our control. Uh, it's something that we don't choose to do necessarily. I mean, most of us don't choose at any specific mo moment to be afraid of the dark or spiders or heights or anything of that nature. It's something driven by emotion. It's something driven internally. And that's why the fear of the Lord is its so important to recognize the difference in what, what the Holy Spirit is describing because it's something that comes from something we can choose to do, which is where the honor and the reverence really comes into place. And when you look through scripture, you see all kinds of values that arise from fearing the Lord. We're told over and over and over again by the Holy Spirit uh, through the writer's hand of the things that come about if we will fear the Lord, if we make the choice to fear the Lord. A couple of those in Proverbs 10, 27, and in 1923, for those keeping notes, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, we're told. In Proverbs 16, 6, the fear of the Lord keeps one away from evil. The fear of the Lord is heavily tied in many, many cases in the Old Testament to these concepts of knowledge and wisdom. So the fear of the Lord, I want you to keep that in mind as we start to examine this, that we, that we are not talking about something that drives from, an, from emotion outside of our control something largely grounded in the, in the carnal mind. We're talking about something spiritual. We're talking about something that involves my desire and my choice to show honor and reverence to the Lord of the universe who has the power and the effect to change. Okay? So um, go with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. 
And I want to point out that while we have many, 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 many passages in the Old Testament talking about the fear of the Lord, this carries directly over, and that encouragement continues into the church. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, this might be a passage, if you guys, like me, have read over this many times, but it's, uh, it's always interesting to dig a little deeper and really see what, what he's mentioning here. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 10, he says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, you know, Peter's going down through here. It sounds like he gives some good advice to the Christian and good, gives, gives the idea, you know, at the very beginning of that, it says the one who desires life to love and see good days. So, you know, it appears that that's the instructions that he's talking about. But as we know, he's quoting one of the prophets here. So let's go back to Psalms, chapter 34. In Psalm 34, this will sound familiar, but we get a little bit more context here, a little bit more information. In verse 11, it says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears, uh, ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What is Peter describing there? He's talking about where David said, I will teach you or instruct you in the fear of the Lord. And that's, that's that concept we see, and that carries directly into the church and something we should consider. So knowledge, looking at knowledge. Now I do want to throw out there, when you, when you look at the many passages in the Old Testament, we have all kinds of these, um, you know, these, these one or two liners from, uh, you know, David or from Solomon, oftentimes interchanging the concepts of knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and if, if, you, if you go as far as to look into the Hebrew text, you're going to see that sometimes those things are translated interchangeably. But what's really important that I want you to understand is there are two distinct con con ideas, there are two distinct um, uh, things that are being stated in those passages that have a certain relationship. We're talking about two distinct concepts. And one of those is knowledge. Uh, I, I would say is knowledge, and that is data facts, skills acquired through education or learning. That's how you acquire knowledge. And to, to a significant extent, I would put experience in that particular field. Experience would fall into this bucket of data that can, can be represented in facts or skills. So it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, I was talk, talking to, I'm kind of surprised I had a voice because I kind of talked Sharon's ear off uh, this afternoon, but I, I told her I, I enjoy I enjoy doing some cooking. Not so much that I like the cooking, but I like the food that comes from the cooking. And um, so I, I do some of that when I can. And, and I'm real big on 
looking up recipes and, and you know, I, I tell my wife, I'm like, I will make dinner, but I must have everything. It drives me insane if I don't, don't have everything. So I, I head to the store, or she heads to the store, and you end up with a grocery bag full of stuff. And that's kind of like what knowledge is. I have this grocery bag filled with particular items or perhaps it's ingredients for a meal. Or for, for those of you who have a specific toolbox for a specific task, maybe you have your electrical toolbox or you have your plumbing toolbox or your general toolbox, that toolbox is full of tools. And that's the idea of knowledge is you have all of those components and your knowledge allows you to identify those particular components. I can look into the bag and I can recognize the bag of sugar. I know it's a bag of sugar. I possess that, that knowledge that that is a bag of sugar. I can look into my tool bag and I can see that adjustable wrench. And I know that's an adjustable wrench as opposed to the fact that those are the needle nose pliers. It's knowledge that grants that particular idea. And we're told in scripture many times that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in this, this accumulation of ingredients or data or facts or skills. So knowledge gives confidence. It in many cases gives a measure of authority in the knowing of those things. We see that, for example, in Jesus' time with the uh, sect of the Pharisees. The sect of the Pharisees knows. They have been educated. They have spent time accumulating that particular information. You see it today in the fact of scholastic achievement in the academic realm effectively comes from the amount that you know. Your, your position, your tenure, your uh, level of authority comes from the knowledge that you have in relation to others. So I have a friend that is a, uh, he's a physicist, he has a PhD in physics. And that PhD represents effectively a certain amount of time, a certain amount of hours, either spent in the classroom, spent in a book, spent in a lab. And then at the very end of that, he had to provide a thesis and ultimately defend the fact that he knew the level that he knows, what he knows and what he has accumulated. And that, then he was granted that PhD, that particular doctorate. And that speaks to what he has in that grocery bag. That speaks to the facts that he is aware of and so forth. And that's exactly what college degrees are. In many cases, they often represent the amount of classroom hours or similar uh, experience or time spent and that that identifies then the amount of knowledge that you possess now there's something really interesting in scripture and uh, it's funny you know in my youth I, I worked pretty hard at memorization and you know as you get older you come across verses where it's like I didn't memorize that and that would have been really helpful <laughs> because that would have helped with this over here and I was teaching through 1 Corinthians a couple years ago and and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 has a lot of interesting things to say about knowledge. Because Paul is addressing the brother that understands that God is not concerned with meat sacrificed to idols. And then Paul talks about the more important principle. And he, he explains that if it, it's not edifying to your brother, 
then your knowledge is worthless. In chapter 8, verse 11, he says, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. If you simply possess this knowledge and you don't know how to apply that knowledge or take that knowledge and discern, and that that is where wisdom comes in, which, again, is a topic I'm a fan of. So knowledge is the accumulation of those things. It's, it's the possession of the tool bag. It's the possession of the, the bag of groceries. Um, then you have wisdom or understanding. And wisdom is the application of knowledge. So again, as you look in the Old Testament, you see some of these things interchange, but these are the two distinct principles that we're talking about. Knowledge is the possession of that information and that data. Wisdom is the application of that particular knowledge. Wisdom is discernment. It is looking into the grocery bag once I get it home and knowing how to bake the cake. It's looking into the tool bag whenever I'm faced with a particular plumbing problem or electrical pro problem or mechanical problem of any kind and knowing how to take those things and apply them in a way that results in a particular solution. That discernment also allows you to know what is right or wrong about the results or the use of that particular knowledge. So it's not just understanding how I might use that adjustable wrench to affect the pipe. It's understanding how that can lead to a result and knowing whether or not the result is good or whether it's bad. So I can end up with something resembling a cake from the use of those ingredients in the bag. But wisdom, discernment, allows me to understand if, if the result is right or if the result is wrong. Does it taste good? Does it look good? Does it smell good? Was the application correct? Was the application appropriate? The difference between these two is why you have a very interesting scenario in much of the workplace. Um, you know, I know at one point in time I, I was managing a bank in our town and it, it was, I wouldn't say it was a rumor around town, it was just fascinating. We, we had a customer come in at one point who had a master's degree that was working as a cashier at a local gas station. And it kind of came up in conversation if she had pursued anything and that just, there wasn't any interest there, there wasn't any application of that knowledge. She had all of that knowledge, she had the, the credentials to show she had that knowledge, and yet there was no application. Uh, I am, for those that know, I'm, I'm a real estate investor and I have tenants. And many years ago, I had a tenant that I sort of tipped my hat to on, um, on you know, really uh, milking the system, I guess. And what this gentleman would do is this gentleman thought to himself, I will go to school forever. Because by going to school, I can apply for grants and student loans that increase my income by 12,000 a year, and I don't have to pay them back until I'm done with school. Well, I'll just keep going till I'm dead. And that's exactly what he did. He, uh, he kept going to school. I think when he passed away, he had two bachelor's degrees and maybe a master's degree, all courtesy of only you taxpayers out there, okay? Um, but it was, it was such a sad approach 
It's like you spend your entire life accumulating knowledge, but there is no application. There's no discernment of that knowledge. There is no taking that knowledge and pursuing anything positive in the use. You're not going to produce anything. You're not going to use that knowledge to in any way be a, be a blessing or, or anything of that nature. And, and that's the difference of why you have, uh, you know, I, I, I laugh. I don't know if he still thinks of this, but years ago, Jeremy referred to us as the two successful dropouts. Uh, very lovingly, you know, we were losers, but, um, but I've, I've managed people at, you know, at the bank and elsewhere that had higher credentials than me. They had bachelor's degrees or they had various degrees, but as I'll kind of talk about in some practical application later is it's really the application and the discernment of that knowledge that gets you places and proves to be effective. Okay. So. One of my favorite, for many, many reasons, uh, one of my favorite characters in scripture is King Solomon. And let's just take a look at him real quick. Go to 1 Kings chapter 3. <clears throat> I come back to Solomon quite often just because his entire life, every aspect of his story, I think there are important spiritual principles for us to consider. And we'll be pretty familiar with this. This is, you know, this is the story, the Sunday school version, where we learn uh, about how he received what what he received. In First Kings chapter three, starting in verse seven, it says, "Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child; I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people." who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and a discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Jumping over to chapter 4, verse 29 and 30, we, we see a little bit the, the extent of that wisdom. It says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. This wisdom, wisdom consisted of discernment. It consisted of judgment, just judgment, as we all know the story of the, the two women and the, the single baby. It included understanding. It included uh, application of that particular knowledge. Okay, so real quick, I have to stop here. Um, Bill's hat is here on the second hand, so this clock isn't moving. <laughs> so I, I, I don't have proper time, but I, I thought that was funny. So where, where am I at? I have no idea what time. You have about three hours. Three hours, good. 25 Is that real? When did I start speaking? Okay. I've been glancing at that and I'm like, I'm going really fast. 
It's like time is standing still. It's, it was standing still. So, uh, so if you go over the Second Chronicles parallel of the, the event of Solomon, it talks about how God granted him wisdom and knowledge. He had all the tools in the tool bag, and he knew how to use them. He knew how to take those. He knew how to apply them. And that's the concept that we're talking about when it comes to wisdom. So we can't, we can't look at my, my title and not address the idea of the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And whenever you uh, look at this particular concept, we are not told in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is knowledge and wisdom, or the fear of the Lord becomes knowledge and wisdom, or generates, or guarantees. We're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And when you start to look into that concept, it can mean the first step, the beginning, or the most important part of knowledge and wisdom. And I, it's very important to recognize that, because again, we are talking about something here that must be pursued. It, it, we see a progression here of the fear of the Lord leading to this concept of knowledge and wisdom. And it's important to recognize that idea of the beginning. It's the starting point. So that kind of talks about terms. I want to I want to hit on a couple of relationships of these terms. So, okay, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what kind of knowledge and wisdom? What exactly does that mean? We've kind of talked about the idea of knowledge. We've talked about the idea of wisdom, but we need to make a very important distinction. God is the source of all relevant spiritual truth in the universe. He is the source of truth. In, in the era that we live in, where truth becomes extremely malleable, extremely relevant to the individual, we as Christians need to recognize that that truth comes from God. The world is full of data and facts and skills and, you know, ideas on a variety of human concepts. Concepts like uh, politics, not, you know, knowledge of the God Apollo, knowledge of medicine, knowledge of sports statistics. All of these things are facts, but this is not the knowledge of God. This is the knowledge of man. And it's really important to recognize that because the knowledge of God applied results in the wisdom of God. The knowledge of man applied results in the wisdom of man. So when we see that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, we have to make that particular distinction because there's a lot of people who've walked this earth that have been held as wise or held as knowledgeable, but all of that is within the realm of human knowledge and human wisdom. And we as Christians are pursuing something spiritual. Go with me to James chapter three. Amen. And we'll kind of see this here. I actually had a brief conversation with uh, Matt Hartford about this. And I heard someone kind of speak on this a while back and it's really fascinated me in comparing things from God and things not from God and really what what those things are devoted to. So in James chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says, Who among you is wise and understanding? 
Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. We see a serious contrast here between wisdom from above and this earthly wisdom, which is ascribed the adjective of demonic. And that, that should seem apparent to us, that anything that is not of God, <laughs> what, what is it really pursuing? What does it really achieve in the end? What is it really, um, what path is it leading towards if it's not leading towards God? I'll explain kind of this application uh, here, here in a little bit. But the most important thing, the relationship I wanted to mention, is that, again, the knowledge of God, when applied, results in the wisdom from above. The knowledge of man, when applied, results in human wisdom. Another relationship that I think we can, we can draw from this is the fear of the Lord is the beginning or can lead to the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. We have some really interesting passages in Scripture, which I think if Bill's been preaching on the fear of the Lord, uh, these, these really stand out. And, and I'm not going to uh, go to them this evening, but for those who are keeping notes, in Exodus chapter 9, 20, as the, as the plagues are raging, we have this really interesting passage that the servants of Pharaoh fear God. So they fear God, and that causes them to protect their cattle or whatever stage they were in, in the plagues, but it did not end with a godly knowledge or a godly wisdom in pursuit, and yet it states they feared God. So all the way back to where I was mentioning an honor and a reverence and acknowledgement, that, that kind of rings true here a little bit. We have another passage in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 41, that this is following the occupation of Assyria in Israel after the, the, the empire of Assyria has conquered Israel. We're told that, you know, we know the Assyrian empire disseminated the people of Israel. They brought in foreign peoples in the land. They took some of the, the uh, Israelites out. And we are actually told that some of the other nations, quote, feared the Lord, but served other gods. Feared the Lord, but served other gods. We all know how Solomon ended up, which is heartbreaking to me. I mean, again, I love his story, but you talk about a lesson that he has all the tools, he has all the wisdom of how to apply those tools and is still led astray from the God that granted them to him. All the tools. The whole point of, of taking a look at this is, is it still requires pursuit. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, but it requires the pursuit. It requires you to choose to go down that particular path. It's not just going to result in it. If you have a reverence for God, well, it appears like the servants of Pharaoh did, but that didn't result in a godly knowledge resulting in an applied wisdom. 
Uh, we know that, that Solomon had all of those particular tools and something was able to pull him away. We need to choose to obey the words of Solomon as opposed to his actions. Again, sadly, where he says, fear God and fear him openly in Ecclesiastes 8.12. And a passage that I had my kids memorize. I think it's fantastic, especially if you read through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. The words of Solomon. So third, third relationship. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of godly knowledge and wisdom, I think it's safe to say that if you lack the fear of the Lord, you're on a different path. Whatever you're pursuing, if it doesn't start at the starting line, then the path is very possibly going somewhere else. Go to Colossians chapter 2 with me. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20, says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the decrees? I love the way Paul says that. <laughs> like, you guys are acting like you're living in the world. What are you doing? Such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. If the reverence and the honor is not there, you will find yourself in the place of the Pharisees. You'll find yourself in the place of the institutional churches of this world. You'll find yourself in the place of the child sacrificers. You'll find yourself in the place of those who worship the God within. I, I, has anyone ever read G.K. Chesterton? You know, I was reading a book recently, and he described, I thought he, that was very eloquent. That he's like, everyone serves a God, many serve the God within. That just means self. That means you're the master sitting on the throne. And if, if there's not that reverence and that honor, you will form some type of religious-looking thing that has the image of wisdom. But it's actually the wisdom of man in disguise. It is not godly wisdom. It's not godly knowledge leading to godly wisdom. So some practical application I want to give you guys tonight before I, I finish up. Um, we as Christians need to recognize the completely opposing nature of the knowledge and wisdom of man with the knowledge and wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. We have passages given to us by the Holy Spirit in Scripture to show the complete opposition of these particular ideas. So, some practical application. I've, I'm i an observer. Uh, I don't know if that's good. I, I, I watch what everyone does and what everything happens and... I, I like to think about it. And one thing that I've noticed in my life, I, I was homeschooled in high school as the homeschool um, environment was growing a little bit. Uh, many of the church schools were, were started around that time in our congregations. 
And something that I've, I've noticed is pretty consistent among homeschoolers and church schools alike is there seems to be this conviction to prove that their, their children, our homeschooled or our church schooled children, are greater in academic achievement than the kids at that public school. And that always kind of made sense to me, you know, like especially as homeschooling was growing, like, hey, we got a point to prove, you know, we're not uh, too weird, you know. Um, you know, we're, we're at least the same, but we'll, we can be better, you know. The, the issue is, is our kids grow up in the church and they rock the SATs, and then how many of them do we lose? How many of them go away and disappear? How many of them are, are raised with all of those principles and then they're sent off to the university of human knowledge and human wisdom? And this, is, this has become, I'm very passionate about this because I think there is, it's almost one of those culturally inspired uh, ideas of, of, that appear to have wisdom that have just sneaked past the, the guard of the church. And that idea is, is as American people, it, it makes sense for us to encourage our children to acquire education, to, to pursue. So, I mean, my dad was that way. He was a religious individual. There was never a thought in his mind, like, I'm a contractor and you're going to college. I mean, that's that was the great idea. A lot of that comes from the generation that, uh, I don't know if you had as much of that out here, but in the Midwest, my parents' generation, most of them were in factories and they wanted something better for their kids. And the, and the key to that as sold to them was the university or the college. Uh, we have people in here of, I, I think we've got, we've got parents in here with young kids. We've got grandparents that have younger children. If, if, I, can, if I can encourage you in anything, please, please be cautious and please be careful about pursuing the knowledge of men that leads to the wisdom of men. I, you know, I, I made a comment. I don't want to, I was going to just talk about Jeremy, you know, that we're the two successful dropouts. But I am here to tell you that academic knowledge from the institutions of humans are not what will get your kids jobs and a living. It is not those academics. In fact, if you really start to look into the purpose of universities, you will never discover that the university of XYZ exists to equip young people with a skill set that allows them to get a job. That is not the mission statement of any university. The mission statements of university is free thinking, the challenging of traditional ideals, a, a, a welcoming of a new realm of knowledge. Right. That's the mission of the university. And that's exactly why you have people come out with hundreds of thousands of debt that have no wisdom to apply anything. And now they're chock full of human knowledge that, that challenges and goes against the knowledge of God. And it's, it's scary to me because it, it, it seems so logical to encourage our children to pursue knowledge. They're, they're, it's more tools in the tool bag, right? It's the wrong tool bag. I have... 22 employees, I mean, I'm, I'm getting ready to have a lot more. I could care less about my key employees' academic acumen. I don't care what knowledge they have. I train them to do everything they need to do. 
What's, what I can't do for them is make them have integrity or make them trustworthy or make them fair or make them... All of those things are character. That's what you focus your kids on. That's what you teach your kids. And those things in this workforce, in this society, they will have endless opportunities because people don't have that. They, tons of people have the academic knowledge. They have the scholastic achievement. What they don't have is integrity and godliness and principles. So I, we had a, uh, an individual in our congregation kind of ask a question, you know, ask me to hit on. And I, I've done some research on this in the past, but I, I kind of refresh my, my knowledge. I, in, in the Midwest, I work at times with Amish individuals. They're great contractors, you know, they do do things. We have a pretty heavy Amish population in Indiana. So I did a little bit of research on the Amish and I'm, I'm a numbers guy and these numbers are a little confusing to me, okay? Maybe you can help me out. The Amish are practically anti-evangelistic. It is very difficult to get into the Amish religion. They're, they're very hesitant to allow someone to come in. In the last 20 years, their numbers have doubled in the United States of America. Wait a second. Anti-evangelistic, their numbers have doubled. Does anyone want to venture a guess as to why? They retain 90% of their children, more than any other religion in the world, despite the opportunity to leave. The children have the opportunity and are granted the opportunity to leave. Guys, that, as I sat there and tried to process that, I'm like, why? What, what is the reason? And the reason is, is that, that, first of all, they put very, very little focus on academic achievement. Most of their formal schooling at times ends at the eighth grade. And at that point, they move into a skill set, oftentimes with family, where they start to learn a, learn a living and they do quite well based on you know the amount of work they do. And guess why they get all the work most of the time? Because their integrity, because of their speed, their trustworthiness, their dependability. They develop character. And their education and their upbringing runs perfectly parallel to their spiritual value. It is one. So the idea of the children leaving is very foreign to them because it's a lifestyle. All of this should sound very normal to us, but what I'm trying to point out is, is the knowledge and wisdom of the world does not want that to happen. Right. I, I'm not going to speak tonight about, you know, maybe some of the spiritual issues that come with that. I'm not saying we go out and build something in the desert, but I'm saying the lifestyle matching the education of character with our children matching the idea of service within the church. It doesn't become a choice at that point. It's, it's who they are. It's what they do. It's what my parents do. They're not, they're not seeing this, okay, so I have a couple options here. We got this God thing on Sunday, and then through the rest of the week, I have the God of academics, and I have the God of sports, and I, I have the God of uh, scholastic achievement to choose from. So when I get to 18, I've got four gods. I just need to pick which one I'm going to pursue. That's what a lot of our kids run into. Because who, what God are we pursuing? What God do you fear? 
What God do you live by? And do we encourage our children to do the same? I am so worried. I mean, I've, I've now got to see, I've got to see astounding parents raise up amazing kids in every spiritual way I can think. But something made sense to send them off to a, to a secular university and all of it blew up in three years. I'm not saying that individual couldn't have pursued that, but it was just very sad to me because I, I think there's a temptation like, whew, the kid's 18, I made it, you know? That's when it, it's really scary. That's when it's go time, especially with the world sitting there with its fangs ready to consume. And I just want to encourage you in that from a sense of practical application. That, that university is not there to provide the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. And if you're worried about your kid getting a job, call me. Because it's not the knowledge of man and the wisdom of man that will, that will earn them a living. The wisdom of God will get them the living. Not to mention godliness and life and faith. So I, I want to encourage you on that. Second practical application, so I can get down here. The con so I want you, want you to recognize, I think is really neat, is the, con the inverse relationship of the fear of God and the fear of death. And I think someone slightly stepped on my toes with this earlier. So um, fears are interesting to me because I try to be a very rational person. And again, most fears in this life are irrational or emotional. And I'm, I'm not, I'm still trying to figure out why God put emotion into creation. And I'll let you know when I figure it out. So, but my wife is afraid of spiders. And she's afraid of spiders because the spider's going to come up and eat her and she'll die. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why. I mean, Sue, I think we had multiple darkness people. I, I don't feel so bad anymore. So, you know, when you're afraid of the dark, I was afraid of the dark as a little kid, maybe not now, but I was afraid of the dark as a little kid because a wolf was going to come out of my closet and eat me and I was going to die. You're afraid of the heights because you're going to fall and hit the ground and you're going to die. I mean, to some extent, which a lot of great stuff has been talked about with the idea of fear, but many of those emotional fears ultimately boil down to their basic substance is a fear of death. I mean, that's what people, you know, a Someone did a great job mentioning the, the terror and the fear that, that, that really of the leading up to the death is really what's so horrifying to people, not knowing perhaps what comes out on the other side. Well, Hebrews 2.15 says that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Proverbs 4.27 says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. There is an inverse relationship between the fear of the Lord and the fear of death. And, and I, I mean, maybe this is something that I work on. I think this is a serious growth, spiritual maturity metric for, for each of us to gauge at times. Because when you really start to contemplate how I would, am I ready to die? When I look at what Paul says, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, where am I on that, that level of confidence? Am I, am I really there? Um, because as your fear of God grows and your honor and your reverence of God, that fear of death will go down. And keep in mind, this is a choice. 
We choose to fear God. We choose to grow in the idea of the fear of God. And as a result of that, the fear of death will go down. And I think that's really important for all Christians to consider at a given time because we live in a, in a time where we do not experience death the way mankind has through the millennia. Uh, I mean, you can look back 120 years ago and you had people living in this country that would have 12 to 14 kids and five of them didn't make it to adolescence. I mean, that was very common, very normal. We, we do not face death to the extent that they do. And to some degree, I think that can feed the fear. And we have to realize, am I fearing God or am I fearing death? And if we're fearing God, the, the result will be that reduction in the fear of death. Ask yourself, where, where is your faith? Where, how, how do you feel with those things? And I'm not talking about sorrow. When my, when my stepdad, for those of you who knew Russ Gretman, when he passed away, I was very surprised because I, I, I had always thought, I'm like, if, if, um, if someone that close to me that I am that confident has this figured out, I think my rational mind will just be joyful. And that wasn't the case. <laughs> it was very, very hard to lose my, it was, it was actually harder to lose Russ than my biological dad, uh, who I love. But um, I'm not talking about the sorrow that comes along with death. I'm, I'm talking about the fear. Because at the end of the day, despite the sorrow that came, the fear of the Lord and, and the reverence of the Lord and knowing that Russ pursued that gave me complete confidence of where Russ resided. And, you know, a couple years later when my carver passed away, uh, you know, many jokes went up about these two giant men frolicking, you know, down the down the golden golden road. You know, I mean, like they're they're in comfort, they're in glory, praise God. But I'm not talking about you know the sorrow or the emotion that can come with that. I'm talking about that particular fear. So uh, I'm going to kind of finish up here. Um, I, I want to go to Job chapter 28. I, I could try to end in some eloquent way, but this is just perfect, and I, I can't say it any better than this. I really want to encourage everyone today that the pursuit of that knowledge and wisdom, it starts with a fear and a reverence to God, and that will result and turn into the, the spiritual concepts of worship and service that should drive our lives. Whenever you fear the Lord, and with that comes this knowledge, the application of that knowledge, while I'm referring to it as wisdom, that ultimately results in the Christian life, which is, is, is identified as who you worship and who you serve. I mentioned those, those foreign nations in Assyria. If you keep reading about them, they eventually... <laughs> you know, did not recognize or honor God. They were kind of trying to skirt the fence there. They, they sort of feared the one true God, but they wanted to serve their other gods. And that, that didn't last very long. Fear of God will result in worship and service of God that infuses your life and that creates that lifestyle that has an impact on those around you and, and your children and, and family, everyone that surrounds you. So Job chapter 28, we'll finish with this. Uh, starting in verse 12, it says, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. 
The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me either. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and metered out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Thanks.